Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the 1968, uh, would people call this a tokusatsu movie? Yes, but with some caveats that we'll get into. Yeah. Okay, well, whatever it is, it's a sci-fi monster adventure of the uh, tokusatsu flavor or not, whether depending on your taste. Uh, it is the 1968 film, The Green Slime. This is one of those movies that I had seen before, but not really. I'd like uh, I, I used to put this on sometimes with no sound on. So, I, you know, be hanging out with people and just look up and, and see the monsters of this film wiggling their wonderful arms in space with <laughs> sparks shooting out in, in darkened hallways and uh, see kind of, you know, square jawed spacemen running around looking grim at each other while the <laughs> while the, uh, the the monsters close in. And it was a great vibe, but I'd never actually heard anything, heard any of the dialogue before. So I didn't really know what the story was. And uh, now here we are. I'm coming home to the green slime. Yeah, the viewing experience that we put ourselves through for Weird House Cinema is, is often rather different from what we've gone through in the past. And I've uh, there have been times where we've covered a film that I've seen before. And my wife will ask me, do you really need to watch it again? Because you've seen it multiple times. And I'm like, yes, I have to for this to be academically pure, nay, spiritually pure. Uh, I need to, to approach it with, uh, you know, a fresh uh, mindset and, g- and give everything the benefit of a doubt and, you know, have my complete attention on it. Well, I, I never knew before how much of this movie was a space marine love triangle. Yes, it is. This is a it is a space marine love triangle. If you like love triangles and you like lots of like militaristic running around, uh, well, then this is the movie for you. Uh, it's also kind of fitting that this week is green slime when last week was an orange slime movie. So we've gone from orange to green. 
Uh, we're probably not going to keep up the uh, chromatic responsibility here, though. That's right. I would say the slime has a different consistency. You know, the slime uh, that you're referring to from last week, I assume you mean what was inside the black obelisk from the viewing. That was Mm -hmm. a very waxy slime. The green slime, I would say, is a much more gelatinous uh, type of substance. Yeah. Now, you may, if you've seen the trailer for this before, certainly if you've seen it before, you know that it has a very groovy theme song. It's prominently featured in the trailer that we're going to listen to in just a little bit. But don't let that groovy theme song fool you, because there are parts of this movie that I think hit pretty hard. Um, And it's also, you know, a really it's a really fun film, but it's more procedural and significantly less groovy, at least compared to that just awesome U.S. poster art and that U.S. theme song. I can't believe you're talking trash on the theme song. The theme song is great. It's it's like a oh, late no, it's 60s good. garage jam. We were trying to think what to compare it to before we started. It's a little bit uh, kind of vanilla fudgy almost. I think the thing about the theme song is that for the longest, I, and I'd never seen this movie until I watched it for t- today's episode, it always gave me the vibe that this was a bikini movie. You know what I'm saying? Mm, Even though I'd never yeah. seen any stills of bikinis, it made me think that it was going to be kind of like that silly, groovy movie for the kids, daddy-o, kind of a flavor that you see in various films from this time period. But it's it's actually not the case. Uh, as we'll discuss, the grooviness was kind of added in post for the American audience. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, the theme song suggests that this is a switched-on, far-out ride. The human element is surprisingly square, uh, they're like it's about these people who are part of Space Command and the the human themes are apart from a love triangle. It's very much about like what it means to follow orders and do your duty. Exactly. Yeah. Now, real quick, if you have seen that movie poster, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If not, go look it up. It's beautiful to behold. Uh, I believe this was a painting done by Vic Livati who did a lot of great paperback novels. I found a a blog post uh, featuring some of his work from back in the day, and there's some very stunning stuff. I'm not 100% certain, but I think he also did the classic poster art for 1969's The Italian Job. This is the one where the poster art shows Michael Caine's character, and then there's a, a woman with like a map drawn on her back. Mm, yeah, okay. And we can say, I think, that this poster continues the 50s and 60s sci-fi horror trend of... Uh, I don't know. There's a motif of questionable sexual politics where there's almost always a woman shown either unconscious or horizontal in some way, usually being carried by a monster or sort of horizontal and screaming while the monster looms over her. This is a variation on that where she's not exactly horizontal. She's diagonal. And the green slime monster is appearing from behind her with one of its tentacles wrapped suggestively around her thigh. Yes. And the the green slime monster looks great. Uh, tentacles swirling. It's uh, like stone dope eyeball, uh, like burning bloodshot against the the, the against deep space. Uh, great poster. You know, it's hard to read emotions onto the faces of the green slime monsters because they are each a cyclops. They only have one eye. Uh, but if you were to try to imagine two eyes like this next to each other and s- say what facial expression of emotion it would indicate. Uh, I would say, actually, this eye is almost kind of a weary eye. It's kind of like, (laughs) oh, this world. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Good point. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. looks like he's he's seen it all. He's tired of it. It's like another space station to conquer. And the way that it says that out loud is by going, 
like that. Uh, you'll, you'll hear the sound effect in the trailer, but they have this very distinct, uh, really, I think, um, fitting sound that they make that's just completely alien. It's somewhere between quacking and squealing. Yeah, maybe a little bit of dolphin thrown in there. Yeah. So this, like I say, this is a fun movie. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think one of the problems, though, that it encountered is that it had the misfortune to come out late in 1968, several months after Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that is ultimately setting out to achieve drastically different things, but a film that still involves uh, shots of of space stations and rockets, shots of people in spacesuits visiting planets, and ultimately some sort of encounter with um, an alien intelligence of one sort or another. I feel like this is an almost perfect example of something that sometimes happens in film criticism and, you know, I guess in broader audience appreciation, which is really forced comparisons between films that there's no reason to compare them except maybe Mm -hmm. that one is on your mind when you happen to see the other. Uh, So, like... Calling this movie, uh, you know, like, oh, not as good as 2001 A Space Odyssey or like uh, I think you're about to read a quote that makes a comparison saying it's like a a poor man's 2001. That is is such a forced and absurd comparison to make. It's like saying that this beagle is not as good as this alligator. It's just like I don't even (laughs) understand what kind of scale you're using to compare these completely different objects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because at the time, there were a lot of comparisons made to uh, Space Odyssey, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the, the reviewers were rough on it. Um, I'm going to read yeah, this part of this review from Variety Magazine. This one is uh, attributed to Brad. Oh, they just had first names back then? Apparently. I, and I'm not super well-versed with Variety, but I, was looking, I, I looked at a few different reviews from back in the day, and yeah, they, they're attributed to um, a first name. I don't know if a last name is given elsewhere in the publication. And also, this is very much like an industry, or and certainly at the time, was an industry-focused publication. So you'll hear some, some little tidbits and some lingo here and there that's clearly, uh, you know, ultimately about the bottom line in Hollywood. Okay, but what does Brad say about the green slime? Quote, science fiction devotees who can take the subject tongue-in-cheek, may find a few humorous moments in this pic, which at times resembles a poor man's version of 2001. The special effects are amateurish. The story and script in the same category. Box office potential is limited, with exploitation possibilities focusing on what title refers to as, quote-unquote, the green slime, a substance which adheres to uniforms of men back from space exploration. The cells of the slime multiply at an incomprehensible rate, allowing the development of a serpent-like monster. Did Brad watch the movie? (laughs) Is is this a serpent-like monster? Brad might have been working on uh, the copy a little bit during some of the action sequences, uh, is my bet. Now, Brad goes on to outline (laughs) the plot further and describe the performances as routine, so, but this, again, I'm not super familiar with Variety Magazine, especially of, of that day. So uh, this led me down a, a brief rabbit hole. I was like, okay, well, what did they say about 2001? And what did they say about another movie I can't help but compare it to, Planet of the Vampires, which came out earlier, which is another space film with spaceships encountering strange life forms, but one that's just very stylish. Uh, we, of course, talked about Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires on Weird House Cinema previously. 
What the Green Slime and the Planet of the Vampires have in common is they are both movies that I used to always put on without sound when I was hanging out with people. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, this is what Variety um, said. I look back, and one Duel, D-O-O-L, praised Planet of the Vampires uh, for its, quote, color camera work and production value, uh, said that they are first class and mentions nice suspense, but knocks its ending as being uh, not to be believed. And <laughs> there are also some expected criticisms of plot and pacing. But Duel, interestingly, says that it all should, uh, quote, Keep the young on the edge of their seats and the older set from falling asleep. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I have fallen asleep in Planet of the Vampires, and, um, so I don't think that's a knock. It is, it's a very hypnotic movie. I recommend falling asleep during Planet of the Vampires. Yeah, yeah. All right. And as far as 2001 goes, uh, Robe, R-O-B-E, is the uh, accredited reviewer. Robe spends about a half a page talking about 2001. It describes it as a, quote, big, beautiful, but plotting sci-fi epic. Superb photography is a major asset to confusing, long-unfolding plot, but should but should do biz in initial release. Um, this and is it vulgar. Also, <laughs> it also contains plenty of comments like, quote, the plot, so-called. <laughs> and, and then there's this chunk here, quote, but 2001 is not a cinematic landmark. It compares with but does not best previous efforts at filmed science fiction, lacking the humanity of Forbidden Planet, the imagination of things to come, and the simplicity of, of stars and men. It actually belongs to the technically slick group previously dominated by George Powell and the Japanese, unquote. What a weird series of comments. Yeah, George Powell, by the way, um, this was the producer of 1953's The War of the Worlds, and um, he directed 1960's The Time Machine. So, you know, I mean, I'm being a little unfair here because reviews always are a little different at the time uh, mm -hmm. when groundbreaking films come out. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to belittle um, uh, uh, Variety Magazine or the people writing for it back in the day, but it is interesting how decades later, the way we think about these films and uh, what would happen if we then compare 2001 to War of the Worlds or The Time Machine. These are all great films. These are all classic sci-fi pictures, but, you know, they're all setting out to achieve different things, like we've been saying. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I would suggest one never compare one film to another. I mean, we do that all the time, uh, but it there is something that seems a little confused when you just like take two films that are very different in tone and type of story and all those things and then just rank them in terms of quality like one is better than the other. Uh, yeah. So lo looking back at this film, I'm not sure that I don't think critics liked it. I'm not sure that audiences really loved it. Um, however, did it possibly inspire Dan O'Bannon to write Alien? Sure. Why not? <laughs> This is the 14th movie we've covered uh, that has been alleged to inspire the Alien script. Uh, In I this case, alleged by us, though. <laughs> okay. I actually didn't see it uh, uh, mentioned anywhere, but it's exactly the sort of film I would believe that um, that comment regarding. Because, yeah, a lot of it does match up with, with stuff that would come in Alien. I think we should start a rumor right here and right now, uh, and hopefully listeners will just go and spread this without attribution, uh, that Dan O'Bannon's Alien script was inspired by Track of the Moon Beast. Ooh, we'll come back to Track of the Moon Beast in a minute. So uh, my elevator pitch for this movie is from the creator of Batman. To save the Earth, they must risk exposure to the green slime. I think that's right on the money. So I think we need to hear some trailer audio and folks at home, prepare yourselves to be groovified. 
the distant stars, the lonely, helpless earth, the 21st century, the world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space, growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect, exploding in unspeakable horror, the green slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. Face against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, the shock world of Green Slime! Green Slime! Green Slime! All right, that's a full-bodied trailer right there. We, we got uh, lots of action. We got those weird alien noises I was talking about. And we got a taste of that groovy theme song. I don't know how much of the song plays in the trailer, if you get, like, both verses or just one of them. But I actually transcribed the lyrics <laughs> because I was trying to understand what hidden messages are in the song. Uh, it's, so here's what I came up with. The lyrics are, open the door, you'll find the secret. To find the answer is to keep it. You'll believe it when you find something screaming across your mind. Green slime. And then the second <laughs> verse is the one where it gets kind of strange. It says, what can it be? What is the reason? Is this the end? And then I think it either says to all that breathes in or maybe to all the seasons. Is it something in your head? Will you believe it when you're dead? green slime. This has nothing to do with the movie. There is no suggestion anywhere in the film that the green slime is a figment of anyone's imagination or a hallucination. So what's the stuff about it being in your head? I think it's just groovy, man. Um, we were we were talking off mic beforehand where it's like, well, what does this song remind us of? And it just dawned on me that what, that what the song reminds me of is... Um, the work of Kenny Rogers in the first edition. Oh my uh, God. Yes. 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 It sounds like I just dropped in to see what condition my condition is in. Was yeah. in. Okay. Well now woe to you who have slandered this song. It, it's, it's right up there with Kenny Rogers. Well, since we're talking about the music, I'm going to break with tradition and we're going to skip right to 
the people involved in the music for this film. And then we'll come back to the director and talk about some members of the cast. So we've talked about this being a Japanese-U.S. co-production. It was filmed in Japan, Japanese director, um, Western writers, uh, Western cast, uh, but then the Japanese crew. The music, the original musical score, and this is what you will find um, as the complete score for the Japanese release, is by Toshiaki Tushima, who lived 1936 through 2013. Um, So I'm to understand most of his original score, which is more of a traditional uh, tokusatsu score, is missing from the version we watched. I watched a few scenes from the Japanese version of it just to compare. Uh, And yeah, it it does feel like much more traditional, the kind of thing you'd expect to find in some of these sci-fi action films of the day. Um, But uh, Toshima scored a lot of Japanese action and crime films, including 1973's Battle Without Honor and Humanity. Uh, But he also scored 1977's The War in Space and a 1974 TV series titled Saru no Gundan, which MST3K fans know as the Sandy Frank movie-length cut of the TV series, retitled Time of the Apes. I don't think Time of the Apes has ever had a proper Western release, um, you know, on disc or as digital. Don't know if I've ever actually seen that MST, though I've seen the title. I've seen the title many times, and it always makes me picture like a sort of a chimpanzee-themed wall clock, like yeah. the, the chimpanzee arms pointing at the numbers. Yeah, I, I would, I would actually love to to see it, especially. I, I would either, I would love to either see the Sandy Frank cut in better quality or just the full series. But like I say, it hasn't been released over here for some reason. Anyway, so that's the original Japanese score. But then a different musician is brought in to contribute to and build up the American release score and to provide that groovy theme song. This is Charles Fox, born 1940. So, uh, and and I want to say that uh, it's not just the groovy theme song. Also, some of the eerier sci-fi sounds that we hear in the movie are also the work of Charles Fox. Fox is a TV and film composer whose most famous composition, I think without a doubt, is the 1972, 1972 single Killing Me Softly with his song mm. with lyrics by Norman Gimbel and original performance by Lori Lieberman. Everybody knows that one? Yeah, I mean, if you don't know the original, you know, like, the, the, the Fuji's version of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, anyway, great song, classic song. The duo also wrote I've Got a Name, or I Got a Name, uh, sung by Jim Croce, uh, I I was familiar with this song, but I wasn't familiar with the fact that it was originally the theme song for The Last American Hero. I don't know if I know this one. Um, yeah, it's it's one that they put on all the, the, the Croce um, Greatest Hits albums. I remember it from back in the day. But um, they also did the Wonder Woman theme song, like the old like 70s Wonder Woman theme song. Mm-hmm. Uh, his scores include 1968's Barbarella, 75's Bug, 83's Strange Brew, and 1985's National Lampoon's European Vacation. He also did the theme for ABC's Wild World of Sports, Love American Style, and The Love Boat. Uh, That was a collaboration with Paul Williams. Oh, say hello to Beef. Uh, Love American Style, was that the name of the precursor to Happy Days that was like the early version of Happy Days? I think you're right on that. I'm not familiar with this TV show other than the title. And um, yeah, so... Uh, I take your word from that uh, on that matter. I just looked it up and whatever I just said does not seem correct. It says this is an anthology comedy TV series from uh, on ABC. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, I'm still going to go with what you said. 
uh, just because it's easier to remember. Okay. I thought it was. Um, I mean, I feel like I've seen a Love American style that was basically Happy Days before Happy Days. Maybe that was one of the anthology segments. There you um, go. Maybe it was that was the spinoff. That it was okay. like one of the anthology episodes was Happy Days. And then they're like, let's do a whole series of this. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. All right, well, back to Green Slime. Coming back to the top, the director is a director we've covered before. This is Kinji Fukusaku, who lived 1930 through 2003. 
the director of 1978's Message from Space, which <gasps> we covered in the fourth episode of Weird House Cinema. That was 10 years after The Green Slime and Message from Space. That, that must be his masterpiece. What a, <laughs> what a beautiful film. Well, he has 68 directorial credits on IMDb. Uh, and probably the big one, probably the, the, the career-defining one for a lot of listeners, occurred very late in his career. 2000's Battle Royale, uh, which was a, a huge hit for him. Uh, I, this is like a darker, kind of surreal, kind of a murder movie, right? Yeah, I saw this in high school. I Did we talk in the Message from Space episode about how he did this? I did not remember that connection at all. I think it came up, yeah. I think it was okay. in the original notes, yeah. Okay, well, I guess it just left my mind. Yeah, Battle Royale's the movie about, like, it's a dystopian future movie where, like, a... Uh, middle school class of, of juvenile delinquents are sent to an island and told that they must all kill each other and only one can survive. Yeah. So it's like a little bit of uh, yeah, Lord of the Flies, a little bit like, uh, uh, I don't know, high school drama. <laughs> it's, it's like the Lord of the Flies meets the running man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, the, these are just two films that he did. He did a lot of other stuff. He did 1970s Tora Tora Tora, 1973's Battle Without Honor and Humanity. He also did, I, I always love looking at uh, back at some of these robust filmographies because there's always something I hadn't really noticed before. He did a, a film in 68 titled Black Lizard. And um, it looks like something I might want to check out at some point. It looks like a, a fun, weird movie, potentially. I don't know. It, it looks very interesting. But he also he directed a number of action, crime, and samurai movies. Mm. All right. Now getting into the, the story and the screenplay. Uh, story credit and one of the producers... This is Ivan Reiner, who lived 1911 through 1997, American writer and producer of a handful of sci-fi films, beginning with 1966's Terror Beneath the Sea, starring Sonny Chiba, mm. and ending with this film. Sandwiched in between these two films um, are the Italian Antonio Margheriti sci-fi Space Station Gamma 1 series, consisting of Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, War Between the Planets, all three of those in 1966, and Snow Devils from 67, which is also a space station movie. Wait, Space Station Gamma 1, isn't the space station in this movie Space Station Gamma 3? Am I wrong? Yes. Yeah, this film was originally con uh, conce uh, uh, conceived as being uh, an, uh, a continuation of this series, and then it kind of became its own thing, But the, so they just slightly changed the name of the space station. What happened to Gamma 2? We don't talk don't about know. that. I haven't, <laughs> haven't seen the uh, Margaretti movies, but they look interesting. I, I, I would check one out at some point. All right. The screenplay. Uh, one of the screenplay credits goes to Charles Sinclair, who lived 1924 through 2017, American screenwriter and occasional actor who wrote two episodes of the 1960s Batman series and also co-wrote 1976's Track of the Moon Beast with Bill Finger. This is the New Mexico episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, and I wonder if Charles Sinclair wrote the line about chicken, corn, onions. <laughs> this is a famous episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, one of my favorite elements is they go to a concert in the movie and there's a band playing a song called California Lady, which the bots transform into California gravy adds flavor to my meat. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, we may have to come back to Moonbeast at some point. Um, Rick Baker did the um, the monster effects on that one. Hmm. All right, now I mentioned Bill Finger. Bill Finger also has screenplay credit. Lived 1914 through 1974. 
American comic strip, comic book, film and television writer who co-created Batman with Bob Kane in the late 1930s. As such, you'll find him credited on all the Batman movies. If it has Batman in it, Bill Finger's name is going to be in the credits somewhere. Uh, I think this and Moonbeast are his only screenplay credits that don't involve Batman. And the vast majority of those are character creation credits. That is interesting. I did not know about that connection when I picked this this film. Yeah. And then another screenplay credit goes to Tom Rowe, who lived 1921 through 2004. This was only a second screenplay credit following 1965's Paris Secret. He went on to work on the screenplays for 1971's The Light at the Edge of the World, 1981's Tarzan the Ape Man. This is the one with Bo Derek, Richard Harris, Miles O'Keefe, and John Philip Law in it. And he also did three episodes of Fantasy Island. Okay, well, we've got at least three to four writing credits here. That's that's letting you know you're definitely in good territory. <laughs> yes. Now, the, the flip side is there are a lot of bodies on the screen in this movie, uh, but there are really only three characters that matter, maybe a fourth, but basically three characters that matter. Uh, yeah. So we're going to discuss them real quick. We have, uh, leading the whole enterprise, Commander Jack Rankin, played by... Robert Horton, who lived 1924 through 2016. He's our rugged, humorless space commander. Very much seems like a like a tobacco-scented cowboy who's been transplanted out of westerns into a sci-fi movie because that's pretty much exactly what is happening with Robert Horton here. That makes a lot of sense. He is cured, rugged, and all business. <laughs> Horton uh, was a stage actor turned MGM contracted talent who worked a good six decades, mostly on television, appearing on 189 episodes of the late 1950s and early 60s Western Wagon Train, 28 episodes of the mid-60s Western series A Man Called Shenandoah, I think he was the lead on that, and seven episodes of As the World Turns in the early 1980s. Mostly known for Westerns, this was his only sci-fi or horror credit. I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. I don't think I'd seen him in anything before either. And when I first saw him, I was a little bit hesitant. I was like, who is this? Um, who is this guy? You know, yeah. um, is he about to sell me a life insurance policy? Yeah, I was kind of expecting him to like kind of phone it in. Um, but I don't know. He has a real sternness and, and it plays well into the performance in a way that makes the character personally unlikable. Uh, but in a way, but in a different way, like lawful good to a fault, but also somehow very believable. And you're, you're still pulling for him against the slimes, but he doesn't seem like someone you would want to be around in real life. Well, yeah, he is kind of interesting. So we've watched a lot of 50s and 60s sci-fi movies that have these kind of military squares as the leading man. He is that, but in a kind of interesting way in that it is recognized and portrayed somewhat as a character fault. So mm -hmm. I think the movie is a little bit more uh, complex in terms of character than most of the movies with this type of leading character are. That's my take, at least. As far as the actor's vibe, he's sort of, uh, he's, he's a little bit Peter Graves, he's a little bit Roger Moore, and he's a little bit Phil Hartman. There is, there's a slickness to him that could quite easily slip over the edge into smarmy, but He's also the party's paladin and paladin in the sense of like often doing, quote, the right thing, even if it is not very nice. Yeah, yeah. Paladin for sure. Ready to fight and obey orders for the greater good, but could also potentially carry out a massacre as well in pursuit of that greater good. 
Um, I also think it's notable that he's always ready to respond to a punch up, like as if he goes through life and it's like, sometimes I, I'm just telling it like it is. And some people try and punch me because of it. So I'm always ready to duck that first punch and come in with the second one. Yes, this is a guy who everywhere he goes, people are starting fights with him and it's definitely not his fault. All right, so that's our that's one of our two main male characters. The other is Commander Vince Elliott, Commander Elliott, played by Richard Jekyll, who lived 1926 through 1997. This is our steely-eyed Academy Award nominated character actor. Um, he did a, he did a lot of action westerns and war movies, including 1957's 310 to Yuma, 67's The Dirty Dozen, 60. Uh, let's see what else. 71's The Deadly Dream, uh, 74's Chosen Survivors, 76's Grizzly, uh, and also The Jaws of Death as well that year. 1977's Day of the Animals. That's an all animals attack movie, I think. Mm-hmm. 79's The Dark and 82's Blood Song. Uh, other credits of note, at least to us, include 84 Starman from John Carpenter and 1986's Black Moon Rising. Um, he was also in 1980's Herbie Goes Bananas. Oh. He was nominated for an Oscar for his supporting role in 1972's Sometimes a Great Notion. This was an adaptation of Ken Kesey's novel, starring and directed by Paul Newman. Now, the presence of Richard Jekyll in this movie and his character is I think one of the other things that makes uh, Robert Horton's character more interesting than he might be otherwise, because again, he, he sort of forces us to process Horton's character as possibly uh, order obsessed to a fault. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jekyll's character here is, I mean, he's ready to uh, initiate punch-ups. He's ready to break rules in the name of like basic human uh, decency. Um, and he's got that chaotic good character vibe. Yeah, that's right. And while I don't think many people would pick the green slime as a real acting showcase, I think Jekyll is probably the the most interesting actor in this. And he has some moments where I was I was pretty impressed. Like this might be a weird comparison, but there were parts of the movie where he really reminded me of Tom Berenger, like certain shots mm. where he says nothing and just kind of gazes intensely over the barrel of the camera. There is a fire burning inside, but he's not going to say a thing, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a strong comparison. Um, and yeah, this is something I, I always enjoy about, uh, I enjoy looking for and I appreciate finding in films like this. Uh, performances that bring so much energy and talent uh, in places where you, you don't necessarily expect to find it, where something lesser could, you know, certainly have been tolerated, uh, especially looking back on it. Uh, but yeah, you find these little diamonds in the rough. And I think, I think he's great in this. I think his energy uh, elevates a film uh, that, um, that otherwise could maybe be more dismissed as just pure, pure slimy nonsense. However, let us not deny that there is lots of slimy nonsense to go around. Yes, there is. And helping to, to clean up some of that um, that slimy nonsense, or certainly to um, to deal with the um, the causalities caused by it, and to treat wounds caused by it, is Dr. Lisa Benson. Uh, this is our third character of note. Uh, really, this is the third of only three characters that really matter in the film, and she is played by Luciana Paluzzi. I'd say maybe four characters. We got we got a kind of sniveling scientist as well. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we do. We'll get to him in a second. We will. Uh, D- Dr. Benson is, um, I'm not going to say there isn't something kind of funny about a lot of her, like, romantic dialogue scenes, 
Uh, but I was happy every time we got a scene with her. She, she's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she's her character is Elliot's current flame and Rankin's former flame. So she's at the center of the personal drama and while at the same time being front and center to deal with green slime related injuries and so forth. Right. So she's sort of the bones, the, you know, the McCoy of the ship. She is the chief medical officer and she's like treating all of these people who have been burned and electrocuted by green slime monsters. And meanwhile, these two different like space marine squares are like, do you love him or do you love me? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she's got to be tired of this. It's like, uh, come on, guys. We got multiple injuries on, on deck C. Uh, so Paluzzi um, is probably best known for her role as Fiona, a specter assassin in 1965's Thunderball. Thunderball, the James Bond movie that I think actually is is one of the better ones. It has a lot of classic Bond stuff in it. It is very fun. But also when you say that, that one has one major drawback which is, okay, yes, I think we have gotten enough underwater scenes now. That has been enough scuba for now. Thank you very much. Like, but by the third act, there is a lot of underwater footage in the movie, and it gets incredibly tiresome. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I, I loved it as a kid, and I loved the theme song as a kid. I had a cassette tape featuring um, all the James Bond theme songs up to that point. They were all covers. I don't know what kind of production this was, but... Um, but yeah, I, I was a Thunderball fan at the time. The bad guy in that one fills his swimming pool with sharks. Oh, that's a good move. move. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Pelosi uh, was an Italian actor. Uh, uh, her be- other big films include 1954's Three Coins and a Fountain. Um, also a couple of Fritz Lang films, mm-hmm. uh, 1959's The Tiger of Eshkapur and 59's The Indian Tomb. Uh, She was also in 72's The Italian Connection, 74's The Klansman, and some of her more B-movie-rific credits include a 58 Hercules movie starring Steve Reeves and Jess Franco's 99 Women, a women-in-prison movie in which Herbert Lom played the evil warden character. Oh. Also of note, and usually don't include, you know, much in the way of like, like, you know, personal trivia, but she was Tony Anthony's partner for many years. Wait, Tony, Tony from Treasure of the Four Crowns? Yep, the very one. Well, I would have been very upset if I found out you didn't mention a connection to Tony, Tony. (laughs) Can you imagine if he had been in this movie? Oh, I'm I'm so glad he was not. All right. Okay. We mentioned our sniveling scientist. This is Dr. Hans Halverson, played by Ted Gunther. Um, So much of the cast in this movie consisted of American actors and non-actors that were working in Japan at the time. Mm. Um, Like just a full call was apparently thrown out. Like if you were an American in Japan, report to the set. Or we're going to revoke your visa. (laughs) This Uh, makes so much sense that apart from like the main few actors one gets the sense of a lot of non-actors saying little incidental lines in this film. Yeah, and so Gunther seems to be more or less of this um, in this uh, this uh, categorization, but he probably has the best uh, lines. He has the biggest role of uh, of the non three main cast members. Um, we'll get into it. It's a pretty fun little role. The sniveling scientist who thinks we should not kill all the aliens. We should collect some samples. We should bring something back to Earth. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is probably his best-known role. His other credits include 1958's Cop Hater 
a police procedural starring uh, uh, Robert Loggia and Jerry Orbach in a small role. I think he plays like a gang uh, member or something. Uh, but uh, but Gunther was also in various Japanese productions of this time period. Uh, he's a real Burke in this one. Well, I see what you're saying about him being a Burke because he's the one who puts people in danger by collecting the samples. But on the other hand, I don't know if he's quite a Burke. He might be more in the Ash category because Burke's just like a company man who's trying to get he's trying to get a commission. He's trying to get, Mm -hmm. you know, a percentage. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's Ash actually either, because Ash is also following company orders. Uh, Dr. Halverson here seems to be more genuinely interested in the science of understanding this creature, again, in a villainous way, like to to the uh, to the extent of endangering other people's lives. But he, he doesn't seem to me to be in it for like money or personal interest. Right, right. He's he in a way his scientific curiosity is pure, but it's too pure. Science is not in charge here. Military is in charge. Right. He seeks dangerous slime knowledge that that could put lives at risk and does. Yes. So there again, there are about 100 other humans on the the screen (laughs) during some of these scenes. And then there are the people in the green slime costumes. But that's it for the, the cast. It's time to get into the plot of the green slime. Well. We begin in space, as we must, uh, but not with the star field this time. With a, uh, Actually, I think maybe there are a little few faint suggestions of stars around, but mainly what we can see at the beginning is a frosty white image of a planet in the distance surrounded by a hazy disk like Saturn's rings. And that got me wondering, is this supposed to be our own solar system? I think it is because I think the home planet is Earth, and there's an asteroid belt like our solar system. Uh, So I guess maybe that's supposed to be Saturn, but I don't know why it's this big, hazy, white mass like that with the rings. Yeah, I guess I like that they weren't too clear on it, so you can sort of um, suspend disbelief. Maybe they're in another solar system, and we just assume that propulsion works well enough. Well, I don't know. I mean, the the plot concerns something coming at the Earth, so it would kind of have to be our solar system. I think so. I think it's got to be Earth, unless they, like, moved Earth to another solar system. (laughs) I don't, yeah. Or we just got some new planets in the meantime. Yeah. I will say that in these early segments, it's it's hard to suspend disbelief with some of the models. Uh, and maybe that's why I hadn't really put these thoughts together yet. You know, I want to talk about the effects. I'll save that for a minute later. Uh, yes, the models, they don't suggest realism. And they're also not, it's not some of the most beautiful miniature model work I've ever seen, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to come back to They are to nice. That. It's yeah. nice model work. Yeah. So we see the Earth. We see Earth. It's kind of a blue ball that, like, uh, comes into the frame. And then around the Earth, we see orbiting a space station, which is wheel-shaped with a central spike at the hub. And this is labeled UNSC Gamma 3. Uh, And then we see a command center with a bunch of technicians all hustling around, manning stations with screens and radar displays. And then one of the technicians starts getting a weird signal, some kind of unusual interference. What could it be? Dun, dun, dun. It is an asteroid. They pull it up on the view screen. And the interesting thing is that this asteroid is not jagged, but pretty much perfectly spherical, but with kind of rough surface, like a carpet, mostly red in color with a few little black continents in that ocean of red. It looks kind of like a char-grilled red meatball. It does. It does look like a meatball. Speaking of, of this planet looking like a meatball, I do want to throw out here that this movie was riffed, and I believe the one of the very, if not the very first, KTMA episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Off the top of my head, I can't remember if this is one where the, 
the footage survives or not. But a lot of those KTMA episodes are, are they're, they're kind of rough to watch. They, you know, MST3K was just getting started. It was, it was the prototype. They hadn't figured out the formula yet. Yeah. Well, I, if this one is available, I've never seen it. Same. But they had to have said that looks like a meatball. That yeah, happens. because it does. It looks like a meatball with grill marks. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the boss at this command center gets some kind of printout and looks at it and says, oh, it's on a collision course with Earth. And then we cut straight to the theme song, <laughs> Kenny Rogers and the New Edition. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, uh, is it just something in your head? Will you believe it when you're dead? Green slime. <laughs> and uh, oh, and there's there's a really good title title uh lettering which you know i love it but it has the the classic english lettering problem of the li sequence so it quite clearly reads the green zoom oh it does yeah the green zoom yeah if you don't know the if you're not aware of the title already it could throw you off but it is very bright it is very green today's episode is brought to you by technically speaking an intel podcast When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So the action resumes at Space Command headquarters, and oh my god, this is just too many dudes in uniforms. Yep, again, this is like, I think, every um, Western dude they could they could uh, lure into the studio for this filming. At first, I was deeply afraid that it was going to be like these eight similar-looking, similarly-dressed military white guys would be our main ensemble for the film, and it would be one of those one of those oh, like, yeah. mid-century movies where you are just constantly asking, wait, which character is this? But fortunately, that was not the case. As we've said, the, the main cast for the movie is a smaller number of actors that look more distinctive from each other. Yes, absolutely. So that is that was a relief for me as well. <laughs> But this is basically to set up uh, what must be done about the asteroid. The only way to save Earth? Gotta blow it up. So the General of Space Command has summoned a man named uh, Commander Jack Rankin to his office. And then the General's aides all start to protest. They say, sir, you can't, you can't bring him on to this mission. He's tendered his resignation. He's off the force. Also, you can't send him on a mission like this where the chances of survival are next to zero. And then I double-checked this next line to make sure I was hearing it right. The general says, he's still the top officer of my command. I'd have absolute confidence in him no matter what we're faced with. And I'll be go to hell if I know what we're faced with. I don't know if I've ever heard that before, but I looked it up. This I found documentation that this is an expression some people say, I'll be go to hell. Really? Because that, that yes. sounds like a flub to me. It sounds <laughs> I, like a... Yeah, like a typo in the script that he just read verbatim, but it's a real mm -hmm. expression, according to the internet, at least. Well, that's it's kind of like that whole saying, like, uh, like if, if one were to say, like, go to hell, you don't know from go to hell. Like, I, I've never heard someone say that out loud. I've only ever read it. And it always feels unreal to me, but I trust that it is something people actually say. I guess so. So the general, he'll be go to hell. Uh, and next we go to his office. Uh, first, he'll be go to hell and then he'll be go to his office. And here's where we meet Commander Jack. And uh, man, Commander Jack is a smooth space commander. If I ever saw one, his <laughs> hair is like one perfect solid mass. I don't think you ever see any of his hairs move individually. Yeah, it's quite a head of hair. There's some scenes where he's wearing a helmet and it's a, it throws you off because you don't recognize him at first. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So they start off by reminiscing. They, they're looking at, at a picture on the wall and uh, uh, the general says, Rankin and Elliot, best space team we ever had. <laughs> and Jack says, yeah, Vince and I were a pretty good team till I ruined it. Anyway, they get down to business. Uh, general says, Jack, you're the only man who can save planet Earth. I need you to do an Armageddon. I need you to plant explosives on the surface of this killer asteroid and blow it up. 
And Jack says, well, in that case, all right, I'm on board. And the general says, oh, also the current commander of the space station you're going to go to 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 do this mission, the man you're going to have to work with to save the planet is your old partner, Vince Elliott, who we just referred to like two sentences ago. Uh, and this is such a cop show setup. You know, it's like that was a long time ago, General. <laughs> Meet your new partner. It's your old partner. Yep, yep. But, you know, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. You know, you're yeah. going to get some fireworks out of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, so the Commander Jack is going to travel to the space station, and we see a lot of model effects along the way. We see, like, model effects on Earth of buildings and cars moving around, and then model effects of a rocket traveling to the space station. And, you know, there's a mix of quality. In some shots in this movie, the miniature models are surprisingly good. Other times they are pretty flimsy, most often somewhere in between. In terms of the flimsy ones, some are quite funny. Like there's one where there's an airlock to space where a shuttle's going out to go to the asteroid and the airlock doors are basically like the swinging doors on a saloon in a Western. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But even though this is not the most gorgeous uh, mini model work I've ever seen in a sci-fi movie, and neither is it usually bad enough to be funny, I just found it such a, a cozy place to hang out. Very pleasing to the eye. I just I just love this stuff. Like model-based effects like this are so nice and they make me want to change the culture of Hollywood that feels like to be respectable, a movie's effects need to look, quote, realistic. Mid-tier CGI effects of today probably are more passably realistic. I'd agree. Like they look probably more convincingly like the thing you're trying to depict, but they're so often just boring and kind of inherently unpleasant in a way that's hard to explain. Miniature model-based effects, even when they are not an outstanding example of their kind, just feel so, so nice. And I was trying to think of what to compare this difference to, and here's what I came up with. The difference between passable mid-tier CGI and passable mid-tier uh, model effects is the difference between looking at a freeway overpass and looking at a lake. Even if it's not the most beautiful lake in the world, even if it's a kind of crummy lake, the lake is just always going to feel a lot nicer. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a, a fair comparison. Um, you know, I don't want to dismiss the work that goes into CGI. No, but I... when when you're looking at a physical scale model, I mean, you are looking at something that's, that someone physically built with their hands. And there's something about that that's undeniable. Well, you raise a good point. I want to be clear. I'm not like slamming the work of, of digital animators. You know, it, it, their work should also be appreciated. I'm just saying, man, I love I love the, the models. The models are so nice. They feel so good. I just wish there were more of them these days. No, no, I'm still with you on this. And yeah, there's just something about like the, the physical model. Uh, you know, it, it just feels more real, even if at the same times. Even at the, if at the same time it looks kind of flimsy in the film, it's like you could still touch it. It just feels nice. It's like walking barefoot on a nice fluffy carpet, you know. But anyway, so up on the space station, uh, oh boy, it's Commander Love Triangle reporting for duty. Uh, this is this is Vince Elliott. He is preparing for the arrival of his old partner, who's about to become his new partner again. And he has a conversation with Dr. Lisa Benson. Uh, further complicating their personal history is that Dr. Benson used to be in love with Commander Jack. Now she is in love with Commander Vince. And she knows Jack is coming to the space station. And this has the potential to inflame old tensions. And it's funny 
given the similarities of the first third of this movie to the Michael Bay film Armageddon, uh, because I also recall critics making fun of those 90s asteroid thrillers like Armageddon and uh, I think it was Deep Impact was the other one. Yeah, maybe. yeah that was another related film. And there might have been some other ones, too, but these asteroid movies where the Earth is in danger. I recall a line of the day being like, it's funny that these movies have a love triangle in them. And we're supposed to, like, be concerned about the love triangle when the main plot is whether or not life on Earth will be destroyed. Yeah, you know, you got to keep it relatable, right? I guess so. Um, (laughs) Now, this is a fun fact about this film. The, The U.S. release is, what, 90 minutes long. The Japanese cut was 77 minutes long and omits the love triangle angle in favor of tighter procedural militaristic action. So normally I'd say I'd be kind of on board with that sort of thing. I, I, I'm, I don't think love triangles and films are just intrinsically uh, interesting. I think sometimes they, you know, they can be, but oftentimes, like you're saying, they're just kind of thrown in there because like, hey, people like this, right? Um, this will get the fireworks going. Uh, but in this case, uh, again, I haven't seen the Japanese cut in its entirety, but the U.S. cut is already a pretty lean movie as far as uh, intercharacter relationships go. So it feels like you'd be really cutting close to the bone if you took out all of the um, the love triangle stuff here, you know? You know, I ended up liking the love triangle. I think it's pretty uh, I good. I did too, yeah. I thought it was, you know, it it's, it's ultimately doesn't, it, it feels... It doesn't feel like this extra thing that was put on for one audience and taken out for another. It feels like intrinsically part of the plot uh, and works. So, yeah, it's hard for me to imagine this film without it because I feel like you'd take a little bit of its, its heart out. I agree. And speaking of heart, this scene gives some more character background about the difference of the soul in uh, so Vince's soul versus Jack's soul. Vince says, you know, he's sure that Jack will get the job done in spite of anything. And Dr. Benson says, or anybody. Uh, so, OK, we're, we're starting to get the picture. They think of Commander Jack as competent, dependable, but heartless. Mm-hmm. And I like how at the end of this conversation, Dr. Benson is like, by the way, Vince, darling, you don't have the slightest reason to be jealous of him. He doesn't mean anything to me anymore, which is one of those reassuring statements that achieves the opposite of its effect. Mm -hmm. But all right, I guess we need to get into the asteroid sequence. So. Uh, Commander Jack arrives on the ship. He assembles the team. Space Command has, at the last minute, added Dr. Halverson to the team. Uh, Who is Dr. Halverson? Uh, I think he's the—do they even say what his job is? He's there to do science. Yeah, he's just the—he represents science on this mission. It's his job to be like, hey, can I get a sample of that? Oh, wait, uh, hold on one second. I'm going to get a sample of that as well. Um, Hold up. I'm coming through with my samples. That's right. So they fly to the asteroid and the the space marines start planting bombs. Uh, They're like driving around looking for places to plant the bombs. And they're driving dune buggies through like red puddles of mud around all these rocks. And again, speaking of great models and sets, I just love this whole sequence. It's great. This is one of those. There are several sequences, especially the ones with various carts in them, which I feel like Lesser films would might have felt very meandering, but uh, this film feels very intentional. Like you, you get the, I said procedural earlier, because you do get the, the feeling in any given sequence where bunches of people are doing stuff that there's a plan, there is a protocol, and that plan and protocol are being followed. That's right, except there are little moments that 
I, I see exactly what you're saying and I agree with it, but there are moments that kind of undercut that. Like when they get to the place where they're going to put one of the bombs down and I think Commander Jack is the one who says, this place looks good as any. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, why'd you drive all the way over here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but okay, so Dr. Halverson's team is just taking samples that are like doing readings and samples and stuff while the other guys are trying to save the world. And while they're doing that, they start noticing that, ooh, the surface of this asteroid is not only rocks and red dust and big puddles of mud and little, uh, you know, pink ponds. There are also pulsating piles of green jello. Mm-hmm. And the green jello actually starts creating problems like it it forms a crust over their buggy tires and ends up disabling some equipment while they're trying to place the bombs and uh, meanwhile the time to detonation keeps getting moved up like (laughs) space command is calling in and saying actually you've got to detonate sooner and commander jack's like we won't be able to get out in time and they're like well you got to do it uh, but they still make time for an argument about whether Dr. Halverson can bring samples of the green slime he has collected along with them when they go back to the ship. And this leads to conflict. It's Commander Jack versus Halverson. And I think he just like grabs his glass vial and smashes it on the ground, doesn't he? Yeah. Isn't this when some get splattered onto somebody's pants and was as well? That, that's right. And that's how we get a little rider. We get a little stowaway. Mm-hmm. Biocontamination. There is another conflict that arises here, which is Commander Jack versus Commander Vince. Uh, The conflict is about whether they should leave people behind in order to take off in time. Jack says, we got to go to, you know, they're not back here in time. We got to leave them. And Vince says, no, we got to wait for them. This will become a recurring theme. Uh, and so anyway, they get back on the ship and then they're going to, the, the bombs are going to detonate soon and they're trying to fly away at top speed so that they can escape the blast radius. And there's a part where Commander Jack has to like, he orders the pilot to go faster and the pilot's like, she won't take it. She's going to break apart. And <laughs> Commander Jack just sort of like steps past him and, you know, pushes the lever into the top position. And uh, it does work. They manage to escape the blast, but they are, they're, they're like, they're kind of melting in the process. Yeah, yeah, they're like thrown back in their seats and against the wall, just going like, yeah, but they make it, they make it out. They make it save the world. That's right. They blew up the asteroid, saved the world. They make it back to the space station where they get a hero's welcome. There is applause. There is cheering. uh, And then they have to go through decontamination. So Commander Jack is like, we must go through decontamination three times. Now, surely if you go through decontamination three times, you could not miss anything. But wait, what is that we see on that one astronaut's leg? Uh Uh-oh, is that a little green bit of jelly there? Hmm. Also, after they do this, Commander Jack's just standing around with blood all over his arm. So they're like, time to go see a doctor. And then he visits the medical clinic, which is the grooviest looking medical clinic I've ever seen. There's one place in it with uh, like it's got designs on the walls and there's a glass partition where Dr. Benson comes in to treat his bloody arm and I guess also give him a vaccine against love triangles. But the (laughs) glass partition depicts, I think, talismans to repel the evil eye. Oh, wow. I don't remember this uh, particular detail. But in general, I love I love the sets. The space station sets all look look really good. Uh, I mean, again, it would be unfair uh, to compare them to the sets in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which are phenomenal, uh, which you know, that's a high standard that that it, it's unfair to compare movies today to that standard. Uh, but I still think the, the space station sets look pretty darn good.
Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And then there's a party. Uh, this, this actually was one of my favorite scenes. I'm not quite sure why. We don't even have monsters yet, but I just enjoyed this party. So they break out the champagne, and I'm quite impressed that this space station has champagne, glass champagne uh, coupes, uh, all, tons of booze in stock, and ice buckets for the bottles. Wow. Mm. And so everybody's dancing. It's a swinging, far-out dance party set to some kind of... Uh, nothing as heavy as the uh, as the groove of the the main theme. It's more of a kind of Herb Alpert style horn music. Mm-hmm. 
and everybody's getting down. The men are all in space command uniforms and the women are all in hip 60s mini dresses. So that's an odd mix. And honestly, I was thinking it looks like one of the dance party scenes in Austin Powers, except all of the dudes at the pad work for Hugo Drax. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the villain from uh, Moonraker. Yeah. Uh, who has all the, the the space uniforms? But also, there there's a lot of awkward dancing. Did you notice the same thing? Like some of these astronaut party goers do not seem to have danced before. They dance like I did in middle school. Just never tried this before. Going to wing it. Well, you know that that reminds us of where most of these uh, extras are coming from. They're just who was available. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense. Maybe they not all of them were dancers. But one of the tables at this party, uh, it is Dr. Vince, or not Dr. Vince, sorry, Dr. Benson, Commander Vince, and Commander Jack. And they're all sitting around, and uh, Vince says to Jack, hey, uh, Lisa and I, we're getting married next week. And Jack looks, you know, he kind of works over this in his brain, and then he says, Lisa, I wish you every happiness. And then Lisa just looks at the floor and says nothing. So that's a good sign for Vince there. He's he's getting all of the the signals are positive. (laughs) Why are these three still hanging out? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But I also, I was noticing in this scene, the extremely shiny, brightly colored food that's sitting uneaten on the table in front of them. I always love to examine a spread of food in a movie set. Uh, So this looks like we've got an oiled up raw tomato, unsliced, something Mm -hmm. that looks like a piece of toast with like a cold pad of butter and a dollop of ketchup on it. And then everybody's favorite jumbo medallions of iceberg lettuce with brown sauce. Yeah, well, I mean, this is all grown on the station, one assumes, uh, and, it, uh, and it it looks suitably kind of fake, like, you know, it was was grown in like a dirt-free environment, some sort of like zero-G hydroponic situation going on. I guess so. So Commander Jack, he wants one last dance with Dr. Benson before she marries Vince. And uh, meanwhile, we see, well, so they, they go get up to dance, but meanwhile, in the decontamination room, I guess the biosecurity officer is uh, not getting to attend the celebration of of far outness because he is busy processing the EVA suits from the surface of the asteroid and the machine is whirring. And then we see something beginning to happen from underneath the folds of one of the spacesuits. There is a substance beginning to expand. It is a yellow green foam like detergent overflowing from a washing machine. And then it transforms from a foam into a sticky solid mass that's kind of brown on the outside, but throbbing green from within. And this might be gross, but I was trying to think of the best way to describe it. And here's what I came up with. It looks like if you got a chunk of really gelatinous homemade beef stock, like maybe a beef pho broth, and you chilled that to fridge temperature so it's a solid jelly instead of a liquid, and then you put a green light bulb inside it and set it a pulsing. Uh, That's what it looked like, and I love the effect. Well, you know, if that's exactly how they did it, it wouldn't be the grossest effect that that filmmakers have made using, like, actual meat products and, and so forth. Oh, yeah. Were the face hugger guts like a bunch of raw oysters and stuff? I think so. I think that's the story. Yeah. And there, there are various other productions where they've done something like that. Well, back at the dance party, Commander Jack and Dr. Benson are dancing. 
and then we get more backstory about how drama emerged between all of them. Jack says that Vince is too nice to be a commanding officer. Uh, and we learn that uh, a while back, Vince had to face a board of inquiry because Jack reported something he did wrong. Jack told on him uh, when Vince violated regulations in order to save someone's life. And Dr. Benson says, you would have done the same in his position. And Jack says, no, he would not have. Vince's supposedly compassionate act, breaking the rules to save one life, ended up getting 10 other men killed. So it was a stupid, impulsive decision, and it cost men their lives. And then Dr. Benson says, do you think that doesn't tear him up inside? He, he's distraught about it. Uh, but then Commander Jack, he's, he gets kind of cold. He, he thinks Dr. Benson is making a mistake. He says to her, you don't love Vince. You pity him. You love me. And it's a, whoa, that is a bold move. And Lisa gets very mad and leaves. Commander Jack is just wired differently. Uh, yeah. Like I said, not... Not a, I don't find, never found him to be a very likable character, though at the same time, a capable character that you're still absolutely rooting for against the, uh, well, the, the brewing alien menace. That's what I was saying earlier. He's kind of, he's kind of complex in a, in a way mm-hmm. that is different for this sort of, uh, lawful good square, military square. Absolutely. Or I don't know. Should we say, we've been saying lawful good. I guess he's lawful good, but maybe somewhere between lawful good and lawful neutral. He's definitely lawful. He's mostly good, though he, I mean, he's not nice at all, but he, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's, he, he's kind of difficult to pin down. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's a complex guy. Meanwhile, back at the decontamination chamber, we got a lab technician who sees something is going wrong in the room where the EVA suits are stored. He opens the door. There's a bright shock of light. He screams. And then Jack and Vince are called to the lab to find the technician's body still smoking on the floor. And the scientists say he was electrocuted. So this starts a frantic investigation sequence. Everybody starts running around trying to figure out what happened. And... I think we've already alluded to the fact that this movie hits on some very different levels in terms of style and tone as far as monster movies go, because it has a reputation for having goofy, fun, funny, campy monsters, which in some shots they absolutely are. And if you see uh, still screenshots from the movie, yes, they, they often do look rather funny, but there are also parts where they're, they're pretty scary, especially for the time. And I think the sequence where an astronaut here goes like searching in a darkened utility shaft for the for whatever it is that did this to the guy in the, the lab. This is one that's actually a little bit scary. I think this scene's potential to be scary is somewhat undercut by whimsical sounding music. I, I think the score does not serve this sequence well. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I almost think it could have inspired Dallas in the air shaft. I'm not saying it did, but there are some similarities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tight scene. There are some scenes where the the rubber monsters are just kind of rampaging, and you know, it can look a little goofier. But other scenes, the lighting is is just right. The situation is just right, uh, where they they do feel like a significant threat. I'll also say that in general, the monster design hides the, the, the human actor pretty well, you know, inside. Like it doesn't, you're able to sort of cover up the fact that it's human shaped at the heart of the, the, the scenario. Also, their weird sound effect and, and the way they're sort of uh, rampaging around, 
they they add to this feeling that, yeah, you're not dealing with something that is like we must destroy all humans. It's just life doing its thing, but it is a life form from a different environment uh, that we were never meant to be exposed to. And that's where the threat comes in. Quote the 78 invasion of the body snatchers. We don't hate you. They don't hate us. They don't hate the astronauts in the space station. They're just going about their life cycle. Yeah, they have a they have certain wants and needs, and those are we'll learn are energy related. And uh, if anything gets in the way, uh, well, they're going to get the the power tentacle. It's not personal; it's just business. That's right. Um, but then there are more investigations, and eventually they find some kind of writhing, screeching organism in the power plant. It's on like a catwalk around one of the the power generation. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to be the reactor or something, and it's this creature lying there. It has these electric tentacles and they're all gathering around it, trying to figure out what to do about it. And this is when Dr. Halverson shows up again to say, don't kill it, capture it. It's a priceless discovery. And Commander Jack disagrees. He's like, we must kill. And Vince sides with Halverson. And of course, he's still the commander of the space station. If he was, he wasn't of the asteroid mission, but he's still the boss of this facility. So they go with his plan, the capture plan. Uh, and they try to paralyze it with gas and shoot it with net guns. But this does not work. It starts... Un- unleashing its writhing, wiggling power cable arms that electrocute whatever it touches. It's all going wrong. Uh, yeah, and it, 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 it becomes a mess. Oh, and there are some moments of, like, shocking violence. I think this is one where one of the tentacles hits somebody, shocks them. They fall off of, uh, uh, off of one of the catwalks, and you see, like, their face splat red blood um, Ooh, yeah. when they hit the bottom. So, like, it, this, this film hits a lot harder than you might expect, uh, especially given it's, like, a G rating. Oh, does it? <laughs> That's I think funny. it technically is G rated, yeah. Uh, I could be wrong in that, though. But, uh, well, yeah, it, it's not one that has a reputation for its violence. Maybe we should stop and describe what the monsters look like exactly. Yeah, so they're they're obviously very situated uh, in the tokusatsu and kaiju tradition. You know, these are big rubber suits and or foam. I'm not sure exactly what the material is, but, you know, we think of them as the rubber monster suit. And while they sometimes benefit from low, creepy lighting, they also yeah get to rampage down well-lit hallways. Uh, the basic form of the monster costume, again, there's a human at the center, but it ends up taking on, you don't really get a sense of the legs so much. You get the waving tentacles. It's kind of got a big central head with that big eyeball, the kind of like red glowy eyeball. And I feel like it is ultimately a monster design. It's, it's easier to lampoon it in stills and out of context uh, shots. But yeah, they often, oftentimes they do feel significantly um, lethal. And then also they, they tend to look good as a, in mass, you know, they look good as a pod. You often see, like, I don't know how many we see at once in a single shot, but uh, I know we'll frequently see, like, at least five of them at once, and I feel like some of the sequences have even more running around. But the essential form is sort of like a uh, a human-sized, maybe sort of a mushroom shape, but green and more like a plant with some bulbs all over the top and then one big central eye that's horizontally elongated and then uh, wiggling tentacles for arms, basically where a human's arms would be sort of at the top and uh, on the two sides. Those arms have little shock tips at the end that are kind of red and can emit sparks and electricity. And then they've got like leaves and plants is essentially plant branches hanging out of their armpits. Yes, yeah. 
So I guess one of the, the, the obvious things to state here, though, is they do not look slimy, per se. They do not look like slime monsters. So if you come into the green slime expecting a green blob, um, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, so, and I wonder if that might have had an impact as well. I don't think the film is called Green Slime in the Japanese release. It has another title. Mm. The green slime creates these monsters. It is not them. Born of the green slime. Yeah. So again, in this scene at the power plant, the green slime monster, it resists capture. It starts going nuts, whipping, whipping its arms everywhere. It kills some people. It injures some others. It injures Vince, who gets like wounded in the shoulder. Jack ends up shooting it with a laser gun, which doesn't kill it, but drives it off, I think, down some kind of pit. And then Jack says, OK, Vince, you've made too many mistakes. I am in charge now. Mm. Power struggle. Um, and let's see, uh, there, oh, there, there's a part later where Dr. Benson is like, this is the first time anything living has been found in space. Do you understand how important that is? And Jack says, tell that to the wives of the men in the morgue. So Jack is not very interested in scientific discovery. He's just like, you know, how we're going to, how am, how am I going to keep my team alive? Hmm. But when Jack shot it earlier with the laser weapon, it dropped some green blood on the ground, some goo. And Dr. Halverson collected a sample of that goo, and he has been doing some analysis. So he calls them to his lab to report. He says the cells of this creature duplicate faster than anything known to man. He says, in fact, their growth rate is incredible. It's frightening. And he demonstrates by, like, running some current through the blood, I think, and that, that makes it just sort of, like, bubble and foam and overflow and duplicate. Hmm. So he says the animal feeds on energy and discharges energy. And as they try to destroy it in the uh, and apparently what happened is as they tried to destroy it in the decontamination chamber, the energy they used to cook it actually fed it and made it larger. And then it could discharge that energy as electricity with its tentacle arms. So it grew larger by by feeding off of energy and then eventually by feeding off of the power plant. Uh, so mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't use energy weapons to attack it because you can wound it. It with them, but ultimately it, those will just make it grow larger and more powerful. Hmm. Uh, here begin several attacks. There is an attack on Dr. Benson's med bay. She's treating patients there from the first big uh, scuffle with the monster. And then one of the monsters runs into the clinic and starts freaking out. And so the doctors are wheeling bandaged patients out while the alien attacks. Uh, I did notice in the scene there were some more funny doors on the set. Like you can see the two planks kind of wobbling as they slam shut. (laughs) And they can't kill the monster, but they do manage to seal it inside the clinic for the moment. And then they discover something else about it, which is that when it bleeds, its blood becomes a seed that spawns whole new monsters. So its blood doesn't just like grow more. uh, Its blood actually becomes one of the new creatures. Mm, so it has this kind of hydra-like quality to it. That's right. And when you shoot it, it so you can shoot it, the blood comes out, that becomes new monsters. That does wound it, but then it can heal itself essentially by using its tentacle arms to weld its wounds shut. Mm. So then uh, Space Command imposes a quarantine. They're like, nothing is leaving this station. If one drop of that blood reaches Earth, it could spell disaster. So y'all are stuck there for now. 
So Vince and Jack form a plan. And this is one of those, I think, things you were referring to when you said the movie is very procedural. It's like they form a plan and they enact that plan to try to trap the monsters. They want to use a generator in a storage room as bait, energy bait, and they're going to turn off all the lights and power in the rest of the station and then use like big flashlights and spotlights to attract the monster to the storage room and trap it there. It's a pretty good plan. I know you love a good monster plan, especially a good monster trap plan. I do love that. And I liked this sequence. Yeah, this is this is fun. And uh, again, it, you know, it's it's sort of balanced on the edge. It waffles between campy and funny and then surprisingly hard edged, sometimes from moment to moment. But a lot of this sequence does kind of work. It's uh, it's not just silly fun. Like it, it works pretty good as a creature thriller. Agreed. So they set this up. The lead up to the sequence is kind of tense. And then the monsters come creeping down the hall. They're they're quacking out their weird screeches. And the plan is working at first. But then, uh-oh, they, they sort of go the wrong way, I think, and end up creeping into the room with all the hospital patients who have been driven out of the clinic. And so they have to lure them back out of there, which Jack does very uh, heroically, self-sacrificially with a flashlight. And then they get the monsters back on track with this array of spotlights that are mounted on a cart. And they're like moving it down the hallways to attract them to the trap. Uh, there, there's a bunch of monster chase action here, but eventually they manage to isolate the monsters behind one of the airlock doors. But there's a problem. Dr. Halverson has become trapped with the monsters in there. Mm -hmm. And are they going to open the doors to rescue him? Jack says no. Uh, Going back for him would put everyone at risk. Vince says yes. And they have a standoff where Jack aims a gun at Vince. He's like, better not do it. Vince says your move. And he opens the door only to find Halverson already burned to a crisp. And then the monsters do get back through. This is a a pretty scary scene, too, by the way. Like it's a, a nice sort of jump scare. So here's one where Vince was just wrong. He he should have listened to Jack. Jack might not have a heart, but he was right. And now the, the threat is revived. Now they end up, I think, trying to close another door to lock them behind. But the monsters are freaking out and wiggling their arms all over the, the mounted lights on a cart. And they end up wiggling their electric arms over some explosives. And then that's not good at all. There's a big explosion part of the space station is destroyed and monsters get vented out into space. I think some are are burned uh, and killed in this explosion. Others end up on the outside of the ship and then the light from the sun is healing them and making them grow. I have to admit when the explosion happened with the, the, you know, the model, the exterior shot of the model partially exploding, the explosion was so big for like a, a, a long pregnant second there, I thought the whole station had blown up. And I was yeah. like, whoa, this is an ar- abrupt ending to that this is, movie. That is what it looks like. Yeah. But it was just part of it. Or most, just most of the ship blew up. The, the rest is fine. That would be a great ending, actually, if the end was just the general and all those people we couldn't tell apart earlier talking mm-hmm. about how Vince should have listened to Jack. And he, he went back to save the scientists that just got them all killed. All our characters <laughs> are dead. Turns out it was just a workplace safety video for uh, Space Marines. Right. So uh, there's another conflict. Jack wants to evacuate the survivors and then have the station completely destroyed so that the monsters will be eliminated. Vince disagrees. He does not want the station destroyed. There's there's another struggle for power. They start punching each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even remember how this moment ends. I think Jack sort of gets the upper hand in the end. 
I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, Jack is always ready for people to try and punch him for all of his, um, his truth talking. Then as they are preparing for evacuation, Vince gets really bitter. Like Dr. Benson comes to talk to him. She's getting her patients ready to get out of there. She tells him to evacuate as well. And he he tells Dr. Benson, I'm tired of people telling me what to do. Go back to your boy scout. I know it's never been over between you two. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. Uh, and then Vince leads a team of spacewalker commandos to go out of the airlock in suits and blast the slime creatures on the outside of the station's hull. And there's one scene where we get a, a classic movie moment where he's like shooting his laser gun. And I guess he runs out of laser uh, rounds. I don't know. His battery dies or something. And he throws the, the ray gun at the aliens through space. Um, there is some good gun throwing in this movie. There is, I think, another sequence where someone throws a gun, This or is it this scene, where the gun doesn't just bounce off the monster's head, but embeds in the monster's chest. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, get it. They're doing, they're trained to do that because it works. <laughs> it's like a spear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but here another problem arises. The station needs to be destroyed by being set to burn up in Earth's atmosphere, but autopilot has failed, so they can't just set it and forget it. Jack volunteers to stay behind and sacrifice himself to pilot the station to destruction while everybody else evacuates. Uh, and so Vince finds out about this plan and, uh, you know, Lisa tells him, she's like, Jack went back inside alone. And you know what? Vince isn't going to stand for that. One last time, he goes back to save the one man. So it's kind of a yeah, it's kind of a, a tight theme. It completes the arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he even even this guy he's been having the conflict with the whole time. Uh, so he leaves the evacuation shuttle, goes back to fight alongside Jack. But oh no! In doing so, Vince is killed. He gets fatally bear hugged by one of the green slime monsters by the tentacle arms. Yeah, which again are not just grotesque arms that crunch, they also shock. And as the space station is set to burn up on re-entry, Jack decides no to quote robot uh, jocks. He says, we can live. He jumps out of the space station that is going into the atmosphere with mm-hmm. Vince's body in tow, and he spacewalks back to the evacuation ship. Man, he must be a fast-moving spacewalker. We get a dramatic final shot of the monsters squealing and throwing their arms all over the place inside the burning space station as it goes down. The model explodes as it re-enters the atmosphere. Jack, back on the ship, he's talking to Mission Control. He says, I recommend the highest citations for Commander Elliot posthumously. So he's recommending decorations for Vince, uh, who, who died coming back to save him and then says, all right, Lieutenant, take her down. And then I'm hilarious mood transition. The green slime song comes right back in. El- Vince is dead. We're going to have decorations for this heroic warrior. Green slime. Oh man. Yeah. I, I had to check out the ending in the Japanese version to see how it differed. And while there's no groovy music, uh, because, again, the Japanese cut doesn't have the theme song. The music is still upbeat, and so the energy is not drastically different, I would say. Um, but I, I, I agree. In either case, it seems like a strange mood transition. Like, we got to send him home happy. we got to send him home upbeat. Uh, even if the ending is, is really kind of downbeat. I mean, we, yeah. we lost one of our three main characters, and, um, you know, the resolution for the other two characters is, is, is not guaranteed. It's it's It's... It's still a complex, dramatic situation that they're having to deal with. But I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. 
tore my mind on the jagged sky. The, the lyrics to that song could be about this movie. They're, those lyrics make just as much sense in context with the green slime as, uh, as, as, uh, as anything. Okay, that's all I got on the green slime. All right. Well, this was a fun one. I enjoyed watching and discussing the green slime. Just a reminder to everyone out there that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is uh, primarily a science podcast with core episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener Mail on Mondays, um, a short form uh, Monster Fact or Artifact on Wednesdays. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want to keep up with the movies that we have covered over the years here for Weird House Cinema, you can go to a couple of places. I blog about them at samutamusic.com. And also you can go to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username is Weirdhouse, And you can pull up a, a nice visual listing of all the movies we've covered over the years. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.